Hey everyone, I'm trying again. Let's see if it's any better. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna try to go live again. I'm sorry for the echo. I'm literally in one of my basement rooms that's open. It's got a little kitchenette over here, a little fireplace. And it's got a second walkout. It's sort of not really a basement because it's a full walkout. But anyway, um, hopefully it works now. Um, now that I'm in the basement, I'm like maybe 25 feet from my router as opposed to, uh, you know, being upstairs. So hopefully it's better. You guys let me know. Sorry for the echo. We're going to be again in a completely empty, like 14 by 12 room. So my apologies for that. But I figured that if I came down here, the internet would be better. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Um, so we are in the basement now. So there's not like four layers of soundproofing and double insulation of rock mineral wool absorbing the Wi-Fi signal. So hopefully it's better. Um, what I should do is just buy a better internet connection. But it looks like we are connected again. I see people jumping in saying they're able to, to connect to it. So fingers crossed we're good. <laughs> so anyway, we've got it set up here. And uh, yeah, Bell's, Bell's terrible. I actually should switch to Rogers. I've had much better success at my last couple of houses at Rogers. I think it's probably a Bell issue with their, their Wi-Fi. Um, just being terrible. We even have a secondary router, but there's conflicts, I think, between the two of them. So again, not an IT person, um, really not, networking is not my specialty. So, and I also just haven't spent the time to dink around with it. But anyway, so the sweet spot was what I was talking about today. And it's the idea that in anything that you do, there's like a sweet spot. And it's the place where you wanna ride in every aspect of your life. There's about eight important aspects to living a happy and fulfilled life. and. So the sweet life involves finding the sweet spot for yourself within all of the major areas from, you know, your finances, your, how you manage your money and your income and all that, your career success, your, you know, feeling uh, actualized, things like the spiritual aspects, physical health and wellness, things like environmental wellness and, you know, overall emotional and spiritual connectivity to other people that includes family and friends and things like that in anything that you do you can go too far. So on the career side and on the money side, I find deals fall in my lap all of the time. And it's like, hey, here's an easy hundred grand for two, three months of work. And like it is a bit of part-time work managing a project and turning a property around. Anyone who says real estate investing is passive is lying to you. It's not. There's an active layer of successfully executing in real estate. And so those types of things fall in our lap. And we're often like, oh, just one more deal. Oh, I just gotta do one more deal. Oh, I just gotta hit this new net worth target. Oh, I just have to do this, I have to do that. Oh, I have to wait in, in Mr. Money's mustache article. He uses a real life example of someone who's got shares vesting. I think something like five years and they get like a $5 million payout on their shares. And they're like, oh, well, I'm gonna keep working a little longer, four more years longer, five more years longer. And yet they've already had millions saved up. They've already reached this the, way past the sweet spot of more than enough. And the same is true in like physical fitness too, right? Like you can go as a runner, he uses the example in the article, and it's one of those things where like, you know, you first start going to the gym or, you know, running, you, you get like multiple times better. You can run way faster. You get like what they call newbie gains, right? When you're doing physical activity. And then after a while, if you do it too much, you get to the other side of the spectrum, you've gone too far past the sweet spot, you'll have joint pain, you'll have, you know, back issues, you'll have bone problems, you'll have like, actual problems and stress in your joints to the point where it's debilitating to run that far and go that fast. Or even with like heavy lifting, you do too much weightlifting, it's not good for you. Whatever you do, you should be in the sweet spot. And so this, the, I guess the title for this video was 
paying homage to Mr. My Mustache, who was one of the guys who, after Early Retirement Extreme, who was the guy who brought me into this in 2010, in this fire movement, before it was even called a fire movement, there was Mr. My Mustache who came, you know, and took the torch from Early Retirement Extreme, I think in around 2012, 2013. And that's how I found his blog. And he was a big inspiration in keeping me on the road to fire and keeping me so frugal and so focused on my goal to work hard towards financial freedom because there weren't anyone, there weren't any people, like there are now, we've created a community in London, Ontario of people doing this, but there weren't for a long time, many people that I could find online doing this. And so um, that's why I wanted to share today's post, uh, you know, as an ad to him, I think it's a great post. I think it's one that resonates really well with me. And I like the piece in the start of it talking about, um, and people ask me this all the time, like, Mike, what's the secret to, to fire? What's the secret to all this? And I'm like, well, the first piece of the secret recipe is just literally, how hard you work. It's like number of hours worked times like skill you've developed at that task times value society perceives of what you're doing equals you know, basically your productivity is being monetized, right? And for those people who aren't being monetized, like artists, find something that people actually get value from, right? You should be doing something on this earth that I keep saying it's at the intersection of the triangle, the pyramid, that is map, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. If you have mastery over something, meaning you're very, very good at it, you have autonomy, meaning you control when you do it and how you do it, mostly that's like entrepreneurial type gigs, and then it's, the P is purpose, and that you actually feel like it's something that's adding value to society. Like, you could be really good at painting, but no one values your painting, that's not gonna probably give you a lot of purpose because no one cares that you're painting these great paintings, right? But if you're painting something that was helping someone in some way, or you could find a way to turn into a business and then donate those proceeds to helping people, you could be at the intersection of mastery, autonomy, and purpose, and that's the sweet spot. And whatever you're doing in your early retirement, on your journey to early retirement, you gotta try to balance staying in the sweet spot. And I want to talk, because people who know me know that I like to go to the extremes. I'm, I've been at times a workaholic, done 100 hour weeks. I've done times where I retired and did nothing. So I, I flip flop all the time, trying to find the sweet spot. And for me, it changes all the time. If I'm deeply engaged in a meaningful way in what I in what I love, then it doesn't feel like work at all, right? And so it's one of those things where you have to find that sweet spot for yourself. And I think a lot of us are chained to these, you know, golden handcuffs, chained to our desk, like, hey, we have such a great paying job, we can't leave, or hey, you know, just two more deals and then we can actually retire. But most of us can retire sooner than we think. And so that's what I wanted to share as the starting topic of this. And there are lots of ways I think to, you know, to dissect a, a good life. And I think that what you'll find is that, you know, the moderation is key in everything that you're, that you're doing. If you don't have, you know, great friendships and meaningful work and, you know, a fulfilling family and environmental aspect, if those things aren't met, you won't be happy no matter how much money you have. Now, money can help you do those things and enjoy those things more. It's like gas in a car or oil in an engine. You really need it to go anywhere, but money in and of itself will not make you happy. You get to a certain point of enough and you've checked that money box off. You don't need to chase it anymore. You, you're there. Um, and so that's something that I think is sort of insightful that a lot of people have time Hard to, this is funny, every time I do a live stream, I get no texts on my phone, until Wednesday at 7 p.m., I get like seven texts, two calls, people are like, hey, I got a deal, Mike, I need to talk to you about this, and like six contractors message me, it's weird. I don't know why, but like, all I need to do is just to go live, if I want everyone to, to message my phone at once. But, um, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. If it kicked you off from that call that just came in, my apologies, hopefully it didn't. Uh, looks like people are still connected, so. 
can hear you loud and clear from the United Kingdom. Awesome, awesome. And sorry for the echo again. There's no furniture in here, so fortunately it's a bit of an echo. Hey, Adam. Hopefully it's just me. I don't know. I nearly messed up my back for a good trying to squat 225 at 145. There you go. Like That's a good example of like heavy lifting as an example. It was very hard on your joints. Most pro heavy weightlifters have major back issues, major joint issues by the time they get into their old age, right? So going too hard at something isn't good. You want to have a good physique. You want to be healthy. That's the whole, the whole point, right? Same with, you know, money. You want to reach a point where you've got like ample amount of money coming in of passive income. You're doing something that you love. You're not doing it because you have to. It's one of those things where that's, I think that is honestly what we're all searching for in this fire movement is finding the most fulfilled, happy life that we can. And I think that a piece of that is mastering your money. A piece of that is mastering, you know, friendships and family and your environment, your spiritual and your health and all of these things coming together to, to live the best life that you possibly can. So what are you guys doing? I guess share in the comments what you're doing to find your sweet spot, to find, you know, what's working for you in your journey. How far are you along your journey? Are you already there? And maybe you just, you're scared to pull the trigger are you like me where you come in and out of retirement and sometimes you're so driven for more that you lose track of the sweet spots in your life that actually will make you happy? And you have to you know, turn back and say, hey, I need to autocorrect here. I need to change course correct to what is gonna make me happy. And that, by the way, doesn't always make everyone else in your life happy. Sometimes finding the sweet spot means you have to disconnect from people who are toxic or disconnect from you know, people in your, in your outer circle, maybe even in your work circle, that want more out of you from a project perspective. They have their own personal motivations, but your happiness is, you know, being suffocated by their needs and desires, and you can't make everyone happy. And so part of finding the sweet spot in life and whatever it is you're doing, your real estate journey or whatever, is you realizing that you can't please everyone and that your happiness, your internal happiness should never be based on external um, locus of factors you can't control, out of your control. Like if something, you know, like if someone's not happy with you because of something you can't control, get them out of your life, right? Um, I still got kicked out. I don't know why you're getting kicked out. That's so strange um, that YouTube is, is kicking people out of the stream. My apologies for that. Hopefully you can catch the replay. Hopefully it'll load up in HD and you can, you can watch it. I guess other people are getting kicked out too. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's up to something on YouTube's end. Um, I wish I could fix it. It seems like I'm connected to the internet. It doesn't show anything on my end that would show any indication of lag or, or anything. So my apologies. Uh, we can cut this one a little shorter if people are having a lot of technical difficulties. Again, just try your best to keep refreshing your connection. Hopefully YouTube resolves the issue that's currently going on in our live stream. And for those people who are watching the replay, smash the like button, jump in the comments, you know, share with me what you've been up to in the last week. If I can help, for the betterment of everyone watching, I'm happy to answer a question. I actually get a lot of DMs in, on Instagram, as an example, where people are asking me questions, like I got like three or four today, that were like these long page responses. And reading that Sweet Spot article today, I was thinking about that too, about how many people reach out and you know expect something from you. And it's crazy how, like in, in the comments, I wouldn't mind answering a long question because I know other people will come back in the comments and see that question. I'll answer it once so that five people can see it, 10 people can see it. Answering it once in a DM and then answering the exact same question again for someone else in private message, it's just really a waste of time. Uh, or it feels like a waste of time in my opinion. And it's become so much less gratifying than it once was. 
Like I used to love when someone would send me a DM and I get to respond back and help and coach them. But now it feels like it's a job that I'm not getting paid for. Like I feel like I'm just coaching people. And the worst is when you don't respond to someone for like 24 hours on Instagram and there's this entitlement that exists. Like I had one where I didn't respond. He came back, he's like, you're such a dick. I can't believe you didn't respond to my message. Like what kind of guru are you? And I'm like, you just sent me a book. Like just to read this would be 10, 20 minutes. To respond to it would be another 40 minutes. You want me to give you an hour of my time when everyone's asking for my time and you want it right now and you're offering nothing in return. Like not even, it's just crazy how some people are, some people are so entitled that like, it's just crazy. I just find this with some of the tenants that I deal with too. It's like some of them reached out and were like, you know, on, on the channel, they made comments like, hey, you should be giving free rent to everyone. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. That's like going to the grocery store and saying, hey, you should give away free groceries to everyone. It's like, what business owner is going to do that? That makes absolutely no economic sense. But some people have these crazy ideals in their head of entitlement that, that I don't know, I guess that they should be able to take from other people who have earned and worked for what they have. And time is a very limited resource that I didn't used to think was so precious until now. I can't believe how much my mindset has shifted around spending my time effectively. As an example, if someone offered me a coupon to you know go to McDonald's and spend 10 bucks and get five bucks off, but I had to wait in line for an hour, I would never do that now. But I would have done that six, seven years ago on my journey to fire. I would have just sat on my phone, you know, tried to be productive with my time, and uh, I would have spent that hour to save five dollars. Now I'm like, hey, my time's worth at least 150. I value my time at 150 to 200 dollars an hour, only because like the amount of net worth that I have, the passive income, I know my time could produce that, right? So my time's valuable. And I don't wanna just squander it, I only have so much on this earth. You know, money's something I can squander a lot easier than time. I would actually prefer in a lot of cases, if someone messaged me and said, hey, can I just have 50 bucks? It would be easier if someone was like, hey, give me 50 bucks on Instagram, than it would be for them to ask me for an hour response to these massive questions. So in a lot of cases, that's what people are asking for. And uh, it's crazy that, um, it's just crazy that people expect so much um, and they offer so little in return. People just wanna take, no one wants to give. And so that's an important thing, I think, in balancing on the friendship aspect of the sweet spot. Um, yeah, I'm sorry guys, I don't know why you can't see anything. I, I'm not sure what's going on. A bunch of people can see something and uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I wish that YouTube would fix it. Maybe there's a way you can, you can uh, refresh your browser or something to that effect. I, I don't know. Um, I'm looking at it here and I, I don't know. I don't see anything here, so. <laughs> can I have a house, bro? Pretty much, like, it's pretty much what people are asking, you know, it's, it's crazy um, how entitled people are to think that they deserve something without working for it. I think people shouldn't, shouldn't take anything they haven't worked for and like, you don't even want that thing. Like, you don't want someone to give you 50 bucks you want someone to give you an opportunity to earn 50 bucks. That's the real value there is that when someone offers you an opportunity um, and then you feel like you've earned it, it's much better than someone just give you $50. You won't appreciate $50. Uh, just the same, like, you know, I give away free information. Most people won't even take action on it. And that's the worst is when you spend an hour or two giving someone information and they don't even respond back, like, thanks, took action on it or something. Don't even let you know that they took any action. It's just no response. You just wasted an hour of your time. And so I can see where Mr. May Mustache is coming from when he's being inundated by social media, um, people going after you. I've had some hit pieces actually here in London. I had some, some uh, socialist journalists come after me and they took clippets of my live streams, right? Just in like, you know, out of context or just like riffing. 
and, and talking about stuff and use that out of context to try to write articles and hit pieces. It's crazy how many people, as you build social media following, are out to tear you down. And this whole YouTube thing, people think it's this great thing, but in a lot of times, it's actually been negative. It's been used against me by tenants. It's been used against me uh, in several times. I've had people try phishing experiments against my businesses. Being out there to try to help people has been done probably a lot more bad than people might think to my life as well. And so there's a sweet spot too with YouTube where you know if you're not making any money and it's just causing you negative, maybe don't put as much time into it. For myself personally, I was spending a lot of time creating thumbnails and videos and I got so many people saying, hey, like terrible thumbnails, do a better job editing. And so I just stopped because there was no, I wasn't enjoying spending 12 hours editing a video and then four hours you know, working with my editor on, on thumbnails and stuff and then you know, working on all the optimization to only get like a few thousand views and a bunch of people trash me, right? So there's, there's something to be said about the sweet spot in everything that you do, do what you love. And so that's, these streams, I don't mind them. When the technical glitches aren't stopping people from watching. Obviously a bunch of people have been kicked off right now. I don't know why, um, not sure what's going on with that. But um, yeah, it's, uh, overall I, I enjoy doing this, right? It's pretty easy for me to go on and do a stream and I just you know, go from, from the head, from the heart. Okay, so I'll do some Q&A here and then uh, we'll see if the stream gets any better. I do see the, you know what it is, it's probably that there's like now two walls between me and the Wi-Fi router and then all the, like you gotta think, Bell's terrible to begin with and probably if you're thinking about it, there's also other people, other devices connected so my internet's being shared with like 20 devices, I probably should just buy a dedicated Wi-Fi but it doesn't make sense for one hour per week, right? Uh, and then some people are having no issues at all. So very weird. I see someone pop up says no issues at all. I don't know. My timer on YouTube just froze. So I don't know if that's indicative of what's going on, but I can see like live timer 1750 and it isn't ticking. Normally there's like every second it ticks. So I don't know what's going on. Uh, maybe it's my phone Wi-Fi. Maybe it's something else. Um, yeah, I don't know. But uh, I'll do the live questions here. I don't see any here so far. People are just saying they're all right. Um, okay. Hey Mike, great topic for today. I'm figuring out what I wanna get with real estate investing right now. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, whenever you get into any business or you know any investing of any kind, you should set up a, you know, a profile for yourself and say, hey, these are the types of risk I'm willing to take that I'm comfortable with. These are the types of you know, things I'm trying to achieve with this goal. What, and then reverse engineer, you know, what do I need to do to get from where I am to where I wanna be? And is where I want to be, you know, actually where I want to be. Some people think, hey, I want 20, 30 properties. And they find out having 20 or 30 properties is like a full-time job and completely stressful. You're dealing with tenants who are like constantly berating you with requests and, you know, it might not be the thing that you want to deal with. Even if you have a property manager, the conflict of having to manage them might not be something you like or, you know, fighting with contractors and things like that. I've had people design a goal of getting into real estate, get into it and realize how hard the business is and be like, okay, I'm pulling out, this isn't something I want. Or they shift in the type of properties that they own. And so yeah, I mean, trying to figure that out, that out early is smart. I bought tons of properties that didn't fit with that goal statement because the cash flow made sense. And now I wanna dispose of them because the properties, you know, from a time perspective are huge time sucks. And they might be cash flow positive, but they make no sense from a return on energy, return on stress, return on effort perspective. Um, so that's something to think about too, good points when you're trying to think about your investing journey, what does that look like? Is it all real estate investing? Is it some private lending in real estate? Is it, there's lots of different alleys and avenues. The key thing being, no matter what you do, 
try to find a way to eke out some, or like pull out of your budget some savings and put that aside because that will, over time, lead you to financial freedom no matter what path you choose. Okay, people are saying it's working, not working, I don't know, I'll skip those comments. Anthony says, does reglazing and finishing a bathroom tub tile add value in a burr? Is it worth to do a full tile replacement? Anthony, it depends on so many factors, um, like the type of property, where it is, all this kind of stuff. So from a real estate perspective, when you're adding value, um, if it's like a yellowed tub or there's like, it's dramatic in the bathroom, I think re-enameling a tub will get you usually a life of three to five years if you were to do it properly, you get like five years out of that tub being refinished. And same with the tile, like you can get a, you can rough it up a little bit with some sandpaper and then paint even over plastic and acrylic, you can paint it and it'll look white and new. Um, and you can replace the drain if it's rusty. And for a couple of hundred dollars, you can save yourself a, a major renovation. And oftentimes we'll get that back two, three, four times, right? Like an updated bathroom might add $5,000 in value on your reappraisal or on your resale. And it might only cost you $1,000 to refresh the bathroom, in which case that $1,000 to refresh, put a new toilet, paint the vanity, put new handles on it, and maybe a new faucet, and then, you know, reglaze the tub. Let's call that $1,000 renovation with, a, you know, a couple of, one box of flooring would do a bathroom in most cases, two boxes of flooring max, final plank flooring, right? If you change the toilet out anyway, it's not, no big deal to put some flooring down. And so a bathroom can be refreshed for $1,000, let's say. And that might add 5,000 in value. That's a, what, 500% return on your money? That's a great use of your money, the use of your capital. I don't know, it just depends on the property, it depends on the current condition. If it's already pretty nice, it might not add any value at all. It might just be able to clean it and not have to re-enamel it. So I don't know the condition. It's hard to make that judgment call without being there and seeing the property. And so that's, that's one of the tricky parts about real estate is that it's not so easily standardized. There's so many judgment calls you have to make along the way and that's even stressful in and of itself. Darren says, when selling a flip, do you find it worth to rent out the basement or sell it as unfinished basement? Uh, almost always, the bare minimum I would do on a flip is paint the entire basement. Like I would, the joists, I would paint them like a nice light gray or do the, the light gray walls, spray paint the whole basement, floors, walls, everything. It makes it feel finished. Um, and then even the ceiling, I've seen people do these ceiling finishes where they paint it like all the ducts, everything black or like white. And it looks really cool, it looks finished actually. You can stage it so that the basement actually is finished without doing any finishing, if you know what I mean. So that, that's a great way. I love to just paint the basement in a flip for like $1,000. And now it's a nice clean space. You put some couches down there or something and it feels like a, an inviting space. You can even, there's lots of ways to stage a space to make it feel finished when it even isn't. And so it, you get at least a partial basement uh, worth of value in your flip. So there's a pro tip. If you're trying to clean up a space, um, that'll help a lot versus just leaving the basement grungy and dirty. I definitely recommend that. Next question. Another question. I have 100,000 in my RRSB and TFSA. Would be interested in lending at 10%. Would you or anyone in your network be interested? Um, yeah, potentially. If you reach out, um, I might have someone I could connect you with on a, a first or second mortgage um, up to, you know, like 80% loan to value. It doesn't really matter if it's first or second mortgage as long as you're up to 80% uh, loan to value. But great tip. Yeah, reach out to me on Instagram at Mike Rosart and I can see if I can connect you with someone uh, or even like probably myself, I could use it, use it on a project. Like I'm thinking of a, a flip where I could put the funds to work. I prefer like not through TFSA or RSP if I can, only because there's costs associated with doing that through Olympia Trust, et cetera. And you'd have to already on your end be set up with a third party 
um, lending arm like um, Olympia Trust that will, will do that. And I would work with them to get the funds. So there's, there's a bit of work through that um, to get that RRSP and TFSA um, lent out. Next one is uh, Cameron Register. I drive for a living. I love having time to myself. I own eight hours a day to think, learn, and get paid, which is amazing, by the way. Any job where you have to sit at a desk and, or even just sit in general and you know, have thoughts to yourself or check out the MLS, that's a blessed job. I have people message me too who, in an eight-hour day, do like two hours of work and they sit in their office cubicle looking at Realtor.ca or like at the MLS and just like looking at deals or doing things they love, reading blogs, watching these types of videos, and that's blessed. That actually is a pretty good job, and it's hard to walk away from something like that uh, if you have that type of um, job set up, right? Okay, next question. I try to blast through these here. Uh, if, if I have extra time or consider a career switch, it would be for a skill acquisition. Yeah, definitely. You might not be fulfilled, might be the only thing that I'm thinking of that would be sort of the downside to that type of job is that you're just finding it like very mind numbing and you're not getting anything out of it. If you, you need to pick up a hobby basically to keep yourself busy for that eight hours. Uh, you're doing that job. Jason says, I can't see. Okay, I don't know. So Jason's been one of the ones coming in and out having issues. I don't know if it's YouTube. I don't know what that is. I wish I could fix that for you. Mike says, uh, Mike Tassett says, people don't realize how precious time is. It's the one thing you can't earn back. Totally true. Spend your time wisely. Stop wasting it on scrolling through social media, on talking to people who add no value to your life, who you, if you're not enjoying the conversation, exit it. Your, your time is valuable. People waste a lot of time hanging out with friends they don't like, trying to impress people they don't care about, all this kind of stuff. Get away from that. Like the fire movement's about finding that thing that makes you happy. If there's people you want to be around in your life, cut them out, stop, don't waste your time, right? If someone's sending you Instagram messages as an example and then bugging you and you feel like a social obligation to respond but it's bringing no value to your life, don't respond. Like that's perfectly okay if that's your sweet spot. Um, you know, within reason, right? Can I, that was a good joke. Uh, another one says, uh, I look after a cottage for a neighbor this summer, they will hit 30K, but their accountant now warned them not to go over. I can't find the video you talked about residential turning to commercial. Oh, I think you're talking about Airbnb. So the way that, and I've said this like four times now, so I'm just saying the same thing again to answer this question. I get a lot of the same questions. Unfortunately, it's a bit, Annoying, but I'll answer it. Um, the idea is with Airbnb, if you um, start generating more than thirty thousand, you then have to get an, start charging HST to the clients. My recommendation would be open a corp and rent your property to the corp for like thirty, you know, twenty-five grand, something. Set up an amount, twenty-five grand a year or something, thirty grand a year, whatever. And then the corp can go re-rent it on Airbnb. Any of the difference is profit to the corp. The corp will be an active business trying to earn a profit through Airbnb active management. And the corp can charge HST if it reaches over 30,000 in booking revenue. And the corp can make a profit and it'll be taxed advantaged and the property will stay residential. You're owning the property residentially. You're not doing Airbnb. You're renting it to a company. Your company is actually putting on Airbnb. So that'll be one example. Talk to your tax accountant. Talk to your lawyers about that. But my understanding was that works to get over that issue. But um, again, I'm not a professional and don't quote me on this. I don't want to be sued. Uh, I'm not liable for that. It's just maybe an idea. Talk to a professional. Good now. Just had to refresh the app. Cool. Hey Mike, what are you doing with your wealth currently? Sitting in cash, buying real estate or stocks? 
Parappa, good question. So I like to keep my money working for me at all times. And so uh, for me, that means that I'm always taking on another deal or investing in, in stocks or something. The only time I ever have cash is when I have to have the liquidity to qualify for a mortgage or I'm about to take down a deal in the next 30 or 60 days. And so that's all I'll have liquidity. For the most part, I operate on a belief that money shows me working and so it's always invested in something and what is it invested in I'm typically invested in heavy in real estate so I have a lot of properties that I'm invested in I dump a lot of money into renovating my properties and then I refinance that out um, and so yeah a lot of it my net worth is in real estate but I also have uh, net worth invested in a few businesses I have private lending um, that I'm starting to do more I'm getting more and more active in the private lending space uh, it still represents a small percentage of my net worth I would say and then I do have a, a decent sized stock portfolio um, which I would like to ramp up into the seven, seven figures towards the end of this year is one of my goals um, to really get aggressive with a, a tax efficient levered stock portfolio, which would give me great returns and no headaches. So that's sort of, people know there's the four, I used to have four pillars that I would sort of build my net worth plan on. And one of them was cash flow from real estate. Second one was cash flow from private businesses that I would own. Third one was stocks, so investing in companies. Uh, they're publicly traded and building a stock portfolio. Uh, and then the fourth one was in, um, what did I say? I said lending, real estate, private businesses, and stocks. Those are the four. Um, so that's basically, I'd like to see about a quarter of my wealth in all four of those categories eventually. Now, if deals keep falling in my lap that I can you know, rent out and get a 25% return on my money, I can't get that in the stock market. So I'm going to keep putting it into real estate. So I'm not always perfectly diversified, but I'm working towards that goal as, you know, also the paramount piece of being more passive in everything that I do. Um, so trying to build systems, trying to have people take things over and just trying to take on less active types of businesses. And I consider real estate uh, in many ways a, a facet of business, but its own silo or core as far as, um, you know, investing goes. I don't have any people talk about the FIRE portfolio having, you know, 40% bonds, 30% bonds, 20% bonds. I have no bonds, no fixed income in my portfolio at all. And that's because real estate and private lending act as my fixed income portion, but historically perform at a much higher rate than bonds with a much lower risk level, especially the way that I would like to structure both my real estate and my private lending uh, arms, so to speak. So I'm a big fan of, of no bonds at all. 100% equities and then having fixed income from my real estate and my private lending. But good question. Lost my spot. Okay, found my spot. Good evening, William. Good to see you on again. Mr. Michaelis says, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Exactly, Mike. You started off with lean fire and accidentally went to the Lux fire. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm still pretty lean, but it got to a point where there's, there's no reason for me to be hoarding cash. Like if, you know, if you're making 200 grand a year in passive income in retirement, hypothetically speaking, there's no need to spend 20 and save, you know, 180, right? Like I might as well, as an example, like it's a bit stressful having a few, you know, a couple of kids and a dog and all that running around my house. One thing we wanted to invest in was someone to clean uh, our house at like a nanny, basically someone to help meal prep, clean our house, just, keep up with everything because we lead pretty busy lives. And I don't enjoy doing laundry that much. I don't enjoy cleaning dishes. I don't really enjoy meal prepping. Um, and there's pieces like picking up dog crap. I don't enjoy doing that stuff. And I do it because it's better than a job. Like I don't mind cleaning up for myself if it means I don't have to work. But now I'm in a position of abundance where 
I can have both. Like I literally don't have to go back to work and I'd still be way under my, my passive income. So yeah, I mean, it just sort of happened because of the wild success that I had in real estate um, that I don't need to be as frugal as I was. And there are areas in my life where I'm extremely, like everything I spend my money on, I'm extremely conscious about that decision. Like if I choose to hire a nanny for $22,000 a year, um, that's a conscious decision. Like, is this bringing more than $22,000 in value? And I justify it by saying, hey, I'll do one deal a year in real estate and, and make more than that back. And the free time now, I got them working say 40 hours a week or something, you know, that 40 hours that they've taken off my wife and I's shoulders, or let's say they've taken 25 hours off of our shoulders, um, made our lives easier. I should be able to invest at least two or three of those or four of those hours into real estate investing to make a, a return to pay for it effectively. So that's just a decision that I've made. It's not for everyone. I would have, you know, three years ago, even if you talked to me about like getting a full-time nanny, I've been like, you're crazy. I'll never do that. That's like way away from my lean fire principles. And so, yeah, it's crazy that we all change our mentalities. And over time, what was a sweet spot before is not the same sweet spot as now. And that's just life. You know, you evolve as a person and things change. Um, yeah. I don't mind, uh, you know, employing someone and contributing to the economy. Squeeze the juice from that like button. That's right. Sash McFlash knows what's up. Smash it. Hit it. Um, how can one avoid time pitfalls in real estate investing? And what did you waste time on? Good question. So I wasted time on lots of different you know ventures. One of them that I used to waste a lot of time on was uh, getting in many different contractors to work on a project and trying to be like a general contractor and manage all these different sub trades. And I'd have like literally a, d a dozen different sub trades working in the property and I'd be grinding through the cheapest, you know, $20 an hour guys that I could find. And what I should have done probably was just say, hey, instead of spending 50 grand on my budget, I'm gonna increase my renovation budget to 60 and spend more, but get the work done way faster with a lot less of my time. And so my, my you know, 300 hours I'm gonna spend managing this project um, would be, you know, made up, I'd spend 10,000 more and save those couple of hundred hours. And so that's something that I wish I would have done earlier on is just increase my renovation budgets a little bit, you know, had that extra margin in each deal that I did. So I'd have to waste as much time. Um, managing renovations is a big one, it takes a lot of time. The other one is placing bad tenants. Uh, I wasted a lot of time learning the hard way that I could have spent two, three hours more during the tenant placement process or waited, you know, two more weeks of vacancy and had a much better tenant quality. No, I've been pretty lucky with my tenant placements, but I'm talking more about the people that I hired to place tenants for me and my managers. A lot of them didn't, didn't spend the time and I didn't spend the time micromanaging them to ensure that they put the best tenants in. And that's on me. That hour of time I could have spent at the outset would have saved me a hundred hours in fighting with the tenant and eviction and clean up the property. Um, so that's an example of like one bad decision early on can cost you 200 hours later. So spend the two hours at the outset doing a better job screening and micromanaging your manager and it'll save you a hundred hours later. Um, so that's one really big area in, in real estate investing where you can save a lot of time. The other one is financing. Once you've built up a lot of you know, properties and leases, it's a lot of work to walk everyone through your whole net worth, all your leases, all your bank accounts, all your properties. It can be a couple hundred pages of back and forth in some cases, and it's a lot. So that's something I wish I would have streamlined earlier. I would have had folders where I saved all my important documents and then it would have been easier to bring them to each lender. Cause I used to do a couple lenders in tandem at once, just in case the lender fell out, I have three commitment letters. And so that's, that can be hundreds of hours of work too, just to take deals down. And so that's something I wished I would have streamlined earlier on. Um, there's lots of examples like that that you just you sort of learn as you go. 
Um, yeah. Good question. Hit the like button. Thank you, D. How to appreciate that comment. Chris says, question, who can help you more with rental tenants, a property manager or a real estate lawyer when it comes time to evict a bad tenant or are cops a better option? Chris, cops almost always do nothing, um, especially where I live. So that's not really an option. Lawyers don't typically do anything either. The person you need to talk to is typically a paralegal. A good landlord tenant board paralegal is the person you need to talk to. So not really a lawyer, but a paralegal. Um, oftentimes property managers will work in tandem with the paralegal to help serve the right notices. The paralegal will work with them to make sure they're serving them properly. But oftentimes the property manager doesn't care enough to invest the time because they don't make any money on evicting tenants. It's the worst thing, like it's the worst thing a property manager can do. Like hands down, it's the worst time investment is trying to get rid of a tenant. There's like, if someone offered me a thousand dollars to get rid of a tenant, I wouldn't even do it. It's not worth the time because um, you spend a lot of time trying to get rid of a bad tenant. So yeah, the best way is a, is a good paralegal. That's what I recommend to get rid of a tenant. Right now during COVID, there have been like no evictions, right? For the last like three, four months, I've heard horror stories of tenants that haven't paid. Um, the new Bill 184 is gonna make things easier now that that's come through uh, for tenants not paying rent. I had one that, geez, they went like 11 months not paying. We had an active trial started after four months and that's just how long it took with the board being backed up to get a trial. They appealed it, they tried to do a payment plan. They didn't even do that. They were just stalling to stay longer for free. And then the, the sheriff finally came and it was interesting. The sheriff's like, yeah, I've seen these guys like six times. They're serially evicted and no landlord ever goes after them. So there's nothing in their credit score. And it's because landlords just, we don't think it's worth the time to go after them in small claims court. And we should, because tenants like this deserve to have this on the record. Uh, deserves to be out there. I think there should be like almost a, like a record, you say, hey, you've not paid rent before, you should be on a blacklist that a landlord could look up and see, hey, this tenant didn't pay rent before and they were evicted by their landlord. It was that serious. I, that'd be a smart thing to do. That would allow us to charge a fair rent to good tenants. Good tenants that actually pay their rent should get a discount. And the ones who haven't paid their rent before who are delinquent should pay a higher rent because they're a higher risk to the landlord. There's a good chance we're not going to get paid. Previous landlords didn't get paid. Previous landlords might've had huge judgments against them for damages that they'd be a high risk tenant. And so to make things fair and make rents reasonable, that would be one thing we can implement that you know isn't here, but I wish it was uh, in our system. So, yep. I wish I had an easy answer for you. Getting tenants out is one of the hardest things you can ever do. The best way is just to pay them to leave, to be honest, uh, from a time perspective, if you value your time, that's the best way. Okay, next question. Lost my spot again here. Scrolling, scrolling. I found one. Hey Mike, I'm considering trying to buy in a good residential area in Houston. I'm thinking of dropping a boxable cottage in the back. How hard is it to hook up the plumbing and sewers to a second unit near home? William, it's not that big of a deal depending on the location of where your sewer line runs. It could be, again, you have to get a plumber out there to see, but it could be anywhere from a few thousand dollars to run a sewer line and a water line underground or it could be, you know, like 10, 20,000. I don't know how much, how far you're going, the existing plumbing you're tying into. Is it old? Is it new ABS? Is it old the cast plumbing you're trying to tie into? Can it even support an extra SDU or secondary dwelling unit? But yeah, in theory, they're easy enough to do and you can get a ton of extra cash flow by dropping a secondary unit. I'm a big fan, it's one of my, big fan of the strategy. It's one of my favorite strategies. It's like an aesthetic trick. Yeah, related to the basement and the painting. Yes, totally true. Jason says, hey Mike, any advice for dealing with tenants wasting utilities? 
Uh, yeah, so put in your lease, even though it's an all-inclusive lease, put in there there's a limit. Uh, there, you know, you include hydro uh, up to $250 a month. You include gas up to $100 a month. Over that, they'd have to pay for it. There's actually a landlord-tenant board form you can serve them for excessive utility usages. You can go after that. So yeah, you, you actually, there are things in your power to control uh, whether or not a tenant is being excessive with utility usage. There is, there is a limit on unlimited. Adam says, hey, I live in Guelph. I have a tenant renting in the house that I live in and own. Their lease is up and are now month to month. They have paid but are a bad roommate. What are the steps to get them out? Um, that's tricky. I guess if you share, like if they're a roommate, like let's say you live in a house and you have a roommate who's like room is beside you, you share the washroom, you share the kitchen, the common area, you can call the police and have them removed with you know reasonable notice. You don't have to share your living space with someone else if you feel uncomfortable and unsafe. That's like the Residential Tenancy Act doesn't apply to roommates. So there is no landlord tenant board for situations where you're rooming together, where you're sharing um, yourself as the owner of the property. So I've had a situation like that and I gave them a week's notice and the police came and I removed them. Your, your lease means nothing. If I don't feel safe, you can't share a kitchen and bathroom with me. Now, if they have their own separate unit, that's different. Then the landlord tenant board applies. But if you share common facilities, then they have no right to stay. If you're not getting along, you can just remove them. It's as simple as that. You can change the locks and have the police present. Okay. It keeps going blank for some reason. I don't know. I wish I could solve that for you, but I don't know. You have to watch the replay. I make $30,000 a year. I saved $100,000. Is there hope? Yes, there's hope. If you make $30,000 a year and you've saved 100 grand, you probably are living on like, it sounds like 15 grand a year or less, right? You're saving a large amount of your income now. So you're living right now on 15 grand a year. What does it take to replace 15 grand a year? 150 grand at 10% return is 15 grand a year. You could replace your entire living expenses on 150 grand at 10%. 10 percent is a pretty easy return to get in, uh, with real estate investing or with even private lending. You just lend the money out, secured against properties, you know, as first mortgages, be the bank effectively. And you have very low risk to return ratio if you stayed in the 80% loan to value range or less. And you'd be able to basically replicate the entire $15,000 you're living on now. So find out what you're spending right now and then, you know, figure out using, say, a 10% withdrawal rate. That's pretty high. You probably want to rely on like a 4 to 7% withdrawal rate because of inflation, other factors like that. Um, and, and yeah, I think that it's totally feasible. You've already saved hundred grand. I think you're probably more than halfway there to your lean fire early retirement. Now, it depends on what you want to do in your retirement. And maybe you want to work part-time still. So there might be other options. But yeah, of course there's hope. You're, you're a lot further along than you might think. Double M says, I recently got an increase of $100,000 on my HELOC. I'm lending out private loans, but I want to buy a property. Continued. Don't want to do more lending as it's affecting my ability to qualify. What would you do with it? Um, good question. So it does affect, that's true. That's a fair point. If you borrow money from the bank and then lend it out, they're going to look unfavorably upon that loan you borrow because they don't want to see you borrow the money and then lend it out to someone else. It's not favorable uh, to the bank. That's true. So maybe you want to max out your mortgages and your borrowing capacity first and then do the lending thing. That would make probably more sense. Uh, but what else could you do with it? There's lots of things. You could put it in the stock market. You could you could literally go buy a REIT, a real estate investment trust, and get an 8% return. There are utility companies you could buy. They pay 7-8% dividends and they're pretty safe. Um, those are all options where you receive enough cash flow from that investment to offset all of the interest income on your HELOC and still be profiting. So there's lots of other options besides private lending. Uh, and the nice thing is those stocks, you can show your lender 
uh, hey, here's my stock portfolio. And they're more happy at that than saying, hey, here's a note to someone or, or a mortgage I lent out to someone. Thank you for these lives, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Steve Mason says, hey, Mike, love your videos. New subscriber here. Any tips you could offer on how to score my first rental property in London? Really looking for the best way to approach it in 2020. So the best way is to wait till the fall. Um, you're not going to find a good deal in the spring or the summer. Most of the time, the market's hotter, right? So you should be looking in like December, Christmas day, right? That's the time when no one else is shopping. Uh, but yeah, look off market, look on market, look for things that need work, look for things that are distressed, look where other people aren't looking, look for stuff that's stale. It's been on the market for 30, 60, 90 days. That's a good place to go. Um, look at 100 properties before you buy your first one. You'll know after you've looked at 100 or 200 properties exactly what you're looking for and what you're not looking for. So the more you see, the better the deal you're going to get. If you buy the first of the five that you see, that's not near as good as seeing 100, right? You'll have a much better chance of finding that perfect deal by looking at more. So the more time you spend, the better the deal you're probably going to find. And of course, work with a good realtor, one who's not focused on making the commission. Okay, next, I'm gonna do a lightning round, see if I can catch up here. If you have an inspection on a supposed to be remodeled home and it shows three prong electrical outlet, AC unit, HVAC, gas stove, blah, 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 do you rely on the seller to fix the issue? Uh, that depends. So in any home inspection, when you have issues that come up, you can bring them back to the home, to the homeowner, the you know, landlord or whatever you're buying the property from and say, hey, look, these are the issues at your property. Um, I need you to fix these or I'm not gonna firm up. And they might say, okay, I'm not gonna fix them. Don't firm up, I'll sell it to someone else. Or they might say, hey, we, we've already got a deal together. How about I drop the purchase price $1,000 and then you firm up? You know, okay, cool. Or they might say, hey, let's keep the purchase price the same. You firm up, but I'll put it in the offer that I'll do those things for closing. In almost all cases, I've just done those things that were issues. If there was electrical issues, I would fix those things. So that'd be how I would handle anything, whether it's electrical, plumbing, whatever it is, um, I'd do it that way. But if you wanna make sure it's done properly, ask for an ESA certificate, um, Electrical Safety Authority, showing that the work's been done and inspected. That'd be a good, good way to go about it if you're really worried about whether it's legit or not. Um, do you get a quote and ask for a reduced purchase price? Yeah, that's one strategy. You get a quote and get reduced purchase price. You could just show them the things and say, hey, I need you to fix these. They may say no. They may say, hey, I'm not gonna fix any of that. I've priced all that in already. In which case, there's nothing more you can do. Um, you can always try, though. it never hurts to ask. Thanks for the tips. Say hey, no problem, happy to help. Hey, Sony, good to see you on. Uh, Port City Trading Desk says, I got into a four unit property, but want to buy more. Did you plateau after your first deal and how do I avoid this? Uh, yeah, so I suppose my first deal is my owner occupied deal. And I bought that one in, in 2012. I didn't buy my next property until end of 2014 and it closed. Yeah, so 2014 was my second deal. So from 2012 to 2014, I did no deals. And then 2014 to 2015, I did one deal. And then 2015, I did a couple deals. And then 2016, I did a more deals. So for there was periods where I went six, eight, nine, ten months, a year. In the start, it was like two years between first deal and second deal. So there is usually a gap. And for me, that was a learning time. Like I was heavily invested in renovating my property and fixing it up. And I was focused on other things. And that's why I didn't speed up as fast as I did, because it was a learning process. But if you had a good mentor or you had, you know, someone who was helping you through those pitfalls and through those issues, you'd be able to go through it faster. And one of the things to doing that is 
you know, again, being an aggressive saver, that'll help you get your down payments faster. Buying a property that's distressed that you can add value to, that's a great idea if you're trying to burr the property, right? Pull that money out, doing a cash out refinance. The burr is the fancy name for a cash out refinance. The idea is you buy a property, you add value to it, you renovate it, whatever, and then you bring it back to the bank, reappraise it, and pull out your down payment, pull out that equity you've created. And you leave some equity in it, but you pull out a lot of the new equity you've created. And the idea behind that is that you now have the gunpowder to take on a second deal, and a third property, and a fourth property, et cetera, and so forth, if you follow that model. That model requires a lot of time. It's a lot of work to go through that model, but it's better than, I think, buying the wrong type of deal that you can add value to and being stuck with one property. At least if you're buying a first property that you live in that you can house hack, that's a win. Um, or even if you're buying a duplex and you can rent both of them out and then use the profit from renting that unit out to pay your living costs where you're living now, that's a huge win too. Um, so that's what I highly recommend is finding a way to live for almost free or free. Uh, I feel I need another year or two to save for another down payment. Yeah, so Port, again, there must be a way, Port City Trading Desk's asked about the four unit property again. And I think, yeah, there's gotta be a way to refinance the equity out. And if you can't refinance it, talk to a B lender. Maybe you can qualify with, or, you know, there's lots of different ways to get the money equity out of the property. And if the equity doesn't exist, then yeah, the only other way to keep going is to save. Um, and if you wanna, I guess there, there are other ways, of course, like you could go borrow private money from people. You could go partner up into a joint venture partnership with someone. Again, that requires you getting a smaller percentage of the deal. Uh, it requires you finding someone who you are okay working with. There's lots of factors in that that kind of come into play, but there are options for sure uh, you can lean into. Cameron says, thanks for doing the streams. You don't even have to give us all this gold, but I appreciate your honesty and experience uh, with a road I'd like to go down myself. Hey, happy to share. Thank you so much for smashing the like button and leaving the comment. After the stream, if you do me a favor, just leave the comment. Uh, that would mean a lot to me. It, it helps the algorithm and it helps remind me that um, it's one of those things that I'm doing that is adding value to people's lives. Because again, I don't want to be doing this if it's adding no value to people's lives and creating risk or liability, right? Whenever I speak publicly for people to see on this YouTube channel, there are people out there watching who want to tear me down who are going to use what I say against me, right? Which is crazy. Um, you think that most of you people like, you know, if someone saw this and even if they're coming from, you know, lower beginnings or humble beginnings, they'd be like, hey, Mike came from nowhere and he's helping other people rise up kudos, right? But some people just want to tear you down. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of risk to doing what I do. And so I appreciate the, uh, the rewards when they come. Next question, Mike, if you could take a VA loan for 500K, no money down, 2.3% upfront charge, would you do it? It depends. Other options, 5% down, 1.65% fee, 10% down, 1.4% fee. Also, could just put 20% down, looking to leverage. So William, it depends on the deal. It depends how sweet the deal is, what you want to do with it. Do you want to flip it? Do you want to hold it long-term? You have to run all the numbers, but less money down is a higher ROI. So you've got to factor in the fees against the return on your capital. And if you have the capital to 20% down, I highly recommend that because it's the lowest fee structure. But if you only have so much limited capital, it might make sense to do the 5% the down or the lower option and pay that extra fee if there's enough margin in the deal then maybe you can do two deals instead and the two deals will profit enough that it makes sense to pay the fees. Good question. P-Man says, I'm from BC and working towards becoming a general contractor for myself. And I see a lot of guys not caring for their clients to the best of their abilities. True, the industry is full of hacks and you know sketchy scums. Um, you'd be surprised. I actually had a painter recently on a property that 
uh, stole all of the paint on site and ransomed me to pay them to return the thousand dollars in paint, uh, which I paid, unfortunately. Um, long story, I'm going after them actually legally now after I've paid that, so yeah. Thanks for the tips in the video. No problem, Chris, happy to help. Double M says, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your weekly streaks and look forward to your thoughts on that each week. Streams, not streaks. <laughs> well, it is a streak. We've been going now for like, what, over two years now of live streams consistently and I've never missed a Wednesday ever. Talk about a guy who is consistent, dedicated and never gives up. That's me every week. Is the good idea to get a real estate license and do your own buying or go with a real estate agent? Is the headache worth it to do your own? Chris, I have talked about this dozen times on my channel now, but unless you're doing more than 10 deals a year, it doesn't make sense to keep the license alive. That's my personal experience. Uh, unless, of course, you have the money that you can afford the $6,000 a year to keep it, keep it going. But the time investment really isn't worth it. You're better off partnering with an agent who is gonna really add value for you and maybe even give you some cash back. Something to that effect. I gotta wrap this up. I'm getting a little fatigued here. Um, and we're getting over the hour now. Didn't know for the 30K Airbnb issue. Yeah, Andrew, it's, you have to charge HST when you get over 30,000. And it can, if you're doing it personally, trigger your property to become a commercial property. Steve says, do you agree that it would be better to purchase a property that it has an unfinished basement? That way I could add more value by doing it myself. Potentially, yeah, potentially. A lot of the properties I've looked at have made sense um, because they were unfinished basements that I could add units to. Thanks, Josh. Hey, Mike, stumbled on your videos a few months ago. Uh, you're the best and have inspired me. Hey, thanks, Josh, appreciate that. I recently purchased my third property. Um, that's awesome, congrats. Last year, uni increased my growth after my job. Sweet, that's awesome. Power to you, I hope to hear more and keep jumping in the streams and give me updates with how things are going. Glad I can help. Hey, no problem, Jamal, happy to help. Uh, it says nervous about getting a home equity loan, even though I paid cash for a fixed upper. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to be nervous about. If you're, if you're having positive cash flow from your property, then your tenants are paying the mortgage, not you, right? And so if there's sufficient cash flow there and the deal's good enough, you should have no fear pulling out the money and buying another property. Remember, one paid off property is the same amount of money as five properties at 20% down. It's the same amount of money. $100,000 property bought in cash, the same as $20,000 on five deals. So would you rather have five properties with 20% down payment, each providing you cash flow, or one property fully paid off providing you more cash flow because there's no mortgage? The answer is these five produce like two to three times the cash flow. So you don't want to own real estate unlevered. I haven't seen a compelling case to own any properties outright in cash. If you give me a property outright in cash and told me I had to hold it in cash, uh, I wouldn't be interested. I, I would sell it. Uh, there'd be no reason to hold a property like that because the return on asset or return on your capital isn't high unless it's levered. So I know there's a bit of risk there, but um, I would argue the risk of your capital sitting in cash and the property is higher. Uh, inflation's eating it away and the return is so dismal. Uh, and Yeah, I just wouldn't do it. But yeah, Steve, good point about the basements. Yuri says, my friends are losing second property in London to multiple offers. Would you sell one of your properties to them? It can be the least attractive. It can be at least attractive as investment property as they're looking to move in. Uh, yeah, I got lots of properties, Yuri. Just hit me up on Instagram, I can pass you. We've got a couple of properties actually that we're gonna be putting up for sale soon so they could get some private dibs and save them the real estate commissions. So yeah, hit me up, I got some stuff, uh, like a duplex, that'd be a good house hack on Oxford Street. Um, yeah, I got a couple of properties, hit me up. Be happy to connect them. I know the market's pretty crazy right now and I would sell them close to market value but it's a freshly fixed up spot. 
that would be a good cash flow. So hit me up if, uh, if they're looking for deals. I do have some properties that you know, I'm selling. Asher says, I have a skill of trade knowledge and thinking of contacting some home inspectors to learn the basic inspection process even for a price. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense if you have no trade knowledge. You should probably bring a contractor through as well, pay them 20, 30 bucks, and uh, you'll be in a position where you can ask them any questions, get them to cost things out for you, get a couple of contractors to give you opinions. That's how I learned. I brought contractors with me, I paid them 20 bucks, and they come through for the hour of the home inspection, and they'd find things the home inspectors wouldn't, and they'd be able to cost it out for me as we went. And so, and I'd probably use them for the renovations once we closed. And so with that carrot dangled, sometimes they come for free just to give you a quote. Uh, so that'd be something I'd strongly recommend um, to help you scrutinize your first investment. Uh, thanks, Mike. There are creative options. Buy the property to pay for rent if you can't house hack. There you go. Lots of creative options. Totally true. I think I got all those questions. Did that question. Did that question. Did this question. Yep. Totally agree. It makes total sense. It can be totally worth the cost as at least the cost of tuition to learn, right? Trevor says, thanks for your time, Mike. Higher rental budget to save time. Careful tenant placement for the win. Totally right. Good summarization of what I just said there. I love that. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate all your thoughts and your time. Got the second unit idea straight from you. Cool hack. Have a good week. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. We're, I've been at this for now over an hour since we started the first stream that had technical difficulties. This one also has technical difficulties. He almost just likes to jump in there every single time. I don't know why. Um, the secret to unlocking a wealth view you is three levers. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Thanks, everyone, and I'll see you next week. And I'll see you in the comments. And you better smash that like button. And if you're watching the replay, go ahead on Instagram, at Mike Rosart, and give me a follow, and send me a DM and say, following. Hi. And leave me a comment on here. I would appreciate it. Bye, everyone.